You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire, one hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko mili tōku ingoa, no mai haere mai ki te waia mō tēnei rā. Kia ora and welcome to The Wire for Ratu Tuesday. I'm your host Millie and I'll be with you for the next hour alongside my producer Beth. If I aki nei, coming up on the show in the hour, we've got Dear Science coming up very shortly with Alan Blackman. I spoke to National Party Shane Reddy regarding the proposed changes to the bill-to-rent policy and Nationals housing plans. Beth speaks with Al Tripp, the CEO of Ecotricity, New Zealand's first climate-positive electricity company. I also spoke to Chanel Julie regarding the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. And finally, I spoke to Lakesh Padhai regarding the proposed ban of PFA use in makeup. The Aha Fakaro, I would love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces, so get in touch. Tukupatui Mai, text in on 5395, or Waya Mairane, give us a call in studio on 309 3879. As per usual, you can catch all these stories and more by podcast on the 95BFM website, 95BFM.com. But for now, let's get into Dear Science. Wonderful, majestic world around us. It's time for Dear Science. Thanks to Motat, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow. Kia ora, Ellen. Hey, Millie. Hey, Beth. Hello. How are we? We're going very well, very well. <laughs> it's a stunning day today, finally. I know. Yes. Beautiful out there. Right, what are we going to talk about today? What are we going to talk about today? <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting stuff, I hope. But, yeah, um, exactly. We're going to start off talking about superconductors. Oh. Woohoo! What do we know about superconductors? They are super <laughs> at conducting. <laughs> <laughs> they are indeed. They are indeed. So before we get into the story about superconductors, we better talk a little bit about what they are and why they are important. And, okay, so whenever electricity flows through a wire, you always lose some. And you lose some because the wire has resistance. Okay, mm-hmm. And so you lose some of that energy as heat. And you might think, wow, that's unimportant but um, I think they've done estimates around about sort of when you're transporting energy on your big wires and pylons and stuff like that from all of the uh, hydro storage lakes down south um, you lose about six percent I think um, just in heat just in resistive losses of um, energy. That's a heck of a lot. It is, it is rather a lot in these um, times. And so ideally what we would want to be able to do is to transport electricity without losing it, without losing any. Ooh. And there is a way to do that is to use superconducting wire. Mm-hmm. So superconductors are things that you can put electricity through and you don't lose any of it at mm. all. Okay. I know, I know. Surprise face me. (laughs) (laughs) It would be nice. And this has been known since the early years of the 20th century that if you cool things down to really, 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 really cold, like a few degrees above absolute zero, you can make them superconduct certain things anyway. Okay. Now, that's kind of not particularly practical. um, Because obviously, you need large amounts of liquid helium to get you down to those temperatures and helium is not particularly 
abundant, unfortunately, and getting less and less and less so. So um, the... <sighs> The search, I guess, has been on for many, many years now, trying to make uh, materials that can superconduct at higher temperatures. And there was a big advance made in the middle 80s, in the mid-80s, where they managed to make the first superconductor that would superconduct at liquid nitrogen temperatures. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes life a lot easier because liquid nitrogen is a hell of a lot cheaper than liquid helium and there's a hell of a lot more of it around. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, still, it's a little bit awkward. Um, you'd like, ideally, to be able to work with these, or make a superconductor that works at room temperature. Okay? Now, in addition to sort of the whole electricity thing, mm-hmm. have you ever been to Shanghai, maybe? Yes. Either of you? You have. Have yes. you? Did you go to the airport and then come in on the train? Um... Well, we definitely came in at the airport. Okay, <laughs> so, so the they, they, they had a train called a maglev train, and maglev is short for magnetic levitation. Wow. And what actually happens is that because of superconductors, the train doesn't actually sit on the rails, it actually levitates above the rails. So therefore you get no friction. It's amazing. And so therefore they can go as fast as you want, basically. No energy so loss. It's the ah. hovering train. Indeed, the hovering train, yeah. So, um, and this is, um, you know, this this could be great. And I think the Japanese have made a, one of these that goes about 500k an hour, something like that. So, oh, you know, it's going to be as quick as, as, as air travel and way less polluting and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, these things are kind of important. So, the heat is on. Oh, no, the heat is on. That didn't mean that. But, um, there's, yeah, so there's a lot of interest in making a room temperature superconductor. Uh, right. Because if you can do that, then you will win a Nobel Prize and you'll be very, very, very rich. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. It's a new philosopher's so, stone. And abso- <laughs> oh, absolutely. Couldn't put it better myself. <laughs> So there's a group over in Rochester, New York, at the University of Rochester, led by a guy by the name of Ranga Dias. He's a professor there, and he and his group have reported in Nature last week um, a room temperature superconductor. Wow. No way. Indeed. Indeed. And it is called um, nitrogen-doped lutetium hydride. Is Whoa, how cool is that? Is there a shortened name? <laughs> yes, there is. NLH. <laughs> NLH. <laughs> Nitrogen to lutetium hydride. Okay. So, uh, yes, it works at room temperature, but they've got to pressurise it to around about 10,000 times atmospheric pressure before it does its thing, supposedly. Oh, okay. it's a pressure thing. So it's a pressure thing. So, But still, it's, it's doing it at room temperature, supposedly. Now, ordinarily, news like this would be big. It would be picked up by all of your sort of local news sources and stuff. Um, and it would be trumpeted all around the place and saying that this is going to, you know, revolutionise humanity. So the question is, why isn't it? And the answer is because this guy's been there before, unfortunately. Oh. And about three years ago, he also published a paper in Nature saying, yep, we've got this um, amazing room temperature superconductor and it works at much 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 higher pressure and again that you know big thing big big result but late last year that paper was um, retracted 
debunked? Well, not debunked so much. Well, kind of, I guess. But <laughs> there, there are there are questions about the legitimacy of the data, let's say, in mm. that paper. And people are talking towards maybe some data being made up or whatever. So, you know, mm. there's a few questions, let's say, and obviously enough questions to require the fact of that paper being retracted, which is about the worst possible thing that you can have as a scientist is to get a paper retracted. So he's the boy who cried superconductor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like it. Oh, yes, oh, yes, I he's like that. He's done it again, he's back. He, but the weird thing is, okay, so you've all heard of the journal Nature. Yeah. That's about the best science journal that there is. So... You know, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you sort of thing. So um, it's quite extraordinary that this has got published in Nature after what happened to the first paper. So, look, you know, if this is real, it is obviously a massive, massive, massive advance in this um, area. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, you know, his previous paper, nobody could replicate Mm. things. So he made a different material and only he seemed to be able to make it. There was one of the big things in science is replication. You've got to be able to reproduce yeah. stuff. Mm. If you can't, then it doesn't count. Mm-hmm. And nobody could get his thing working the way that he did. So, fingers uh, crossed. Yeah, well, Wait and we'll, see. we'll see. We'll see. But um, there's see. there's there's lots more in this story um, yeah. coming. I'm sure. So yeah, yeah. We'll eyes see and ears peeled. Absolutely. We will keep you up to date here on Dear Science. Yes, and from <laughs> new discoveries to an even newer discovery. Insulin. Insulin, yes. Well, it's not that new a discovery. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Well, let's say it's always been around, but um, it was first isolated, I think, back in about the 1920s or so. And obviously, if there are any type 1 diabetics out there listening, they will know the importance of insulin. I'm sure the general public know the importance of insulin and regulating blood sugar. And... Um, you know, it's very, very effective at what it does. And um, so you might think now that we would know all that there is to know about insulin because, as I say, you know, we've, we've known it for 100 years. We know what it's made of. We know mm-hmm. it's made of 51 amino acids. And <laughs> that makes it a big, long molecule, okay? Mm-hmm. Big, like, big, big piece of string sort of thing, okay? And... Um, now, because it's so long, what it can do is it can sort of um, interact with itself yeah. and it can group up, essentially. So insulin molecules, what they do, they can either be just by themselves, mm-hmm. which we call monomers, or they can get together with one other insulin molecule and mm-hmm. whatever, and so we call those dimers, or they can get together with six insulin molecules yeah. and we call those hexamers. A party. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <yeah>. A sports <laughs> team. <laughs> A basketball team and one reserve, I guess, yeah. So um, what was no, or what is known about insulin is that it's really only the monomer form that's the active form. So that's the one that does the business with your blood sugar, okay? Yeah. And the dimer and the hexamer seem to be inactive, But they can break down to form monomers and then they can go on to be active. So there's workers at, uh, where are they? University of Copenhagen and Aarhus uh, in Denmark. Now, what they have shown is that we really 
don't know as much as we thought about insulin. And specifically, what we don't know is the amount of monomer in mm. this mixture. Okay, so in any mixture of insulin, you're going to have monomer, dimer, hexamer. And um, what people had thought was there was a particular amount of monomer in this mixture. These folk have shown through a variety of really sort of up-to-date techniques that no, there's not as much monomer there as people have thought. And in fact, there's only ah. about half as much as oh. people have thought. Does this okay. reduce the efficiency? Bang, there you go. Okay, oh. so that's that's going to be really, really important because um, it's it's meaning basically that we've been making up these formulations of insulin all over the years, assuming a particular amount of monomer. There's not that much in there. So... What this may well mean, may being the operative word, because this has been done in vitro, okay? So it hasn't been done in vivo. It's been done in vitro. No reason to think that it might not be different in vivo, but again, we'll see. Um, but it may lead to, or and, and, and if this is shown to be correct, it should lead to new formulations of insulin in which the amount of monomer then is maximised. Okay, right. so they can they can fiddle around with this sort of stuff and um, you know play chemical games and everything and get them out there that they want. But at the moment, it seems that very possibly the formulations that are being used are more dilute, let's say, than people have thought that they are. So mm-hmm. that could make a real, real difference to people's lives. Um, yeah. What I loved mm. about the study is at the end they were like, you know, it can make you feel really bad, but. Maybe not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe people will feel great. Yeah, yeah. Maybe so, they've just been having the wrong dose the whole time. Well, ex- yeah, exactly. Okay. That's that's essentially what it is. Mm. That you know they've they've essentially been underdosed. If yes. if this is the case in the body, so again, as usual with many stories on dear science, you know, watch this space. Always mm. learning. Absolutely. Always learning, and <laughs> we've learned something new about oxygen. I know, and too much is bad for you. Who knew? Oh, wow. <laughs> I thought you could never have too much oxygen. Exa- well, that, there you go. That's a really, really good point. And, you know, they had these oxygen bars overseas and stuff like that where you I go know. around inhaling, you know, pure oxygen and everything. No, it can be bad for you. Yeah. Okay. And, in fact, what can happen is that it can lead to tissue damage, organ damage, and you can even die from too much oxygen. Okay, that's okay. bad. <laughs> Which is probably why it's a good thing there's only 21% of oxygen in the air that we breathe. Mm, yeah. Okay. How because did they find this out? How does one uh, have too much oxygen? Yeah, ha-ha. Well, <laughs> again, you know, so this, this has been known for quite some time, actually. Mm. But what has not been known is the reason why. Okay, so huh? why is too much bad for you? What's actually going on at the real sort of molecular level? Okay, because you know oxygen is is necessary for life. Obviously, mm. you know it's it's really important stuff. But you know, too much of a good thing can can <laughs> can be bad for you. Sure can. So these researchers in San Francisco at a place called the Gladstone Institute. Um, oh, this this is just incredible work, just <laughs> utterly mind-boggling. So what they did, they took individual human cells. And using this gene editing technique called CRISPR, which you may or may not have heard of, yeah, so it won, it won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. Um, what they did, they took out one gene at a time 
out of 20,000 human cells. So they did this to 20,000 different human cells and they took out a different gene out of mm. each of them. <laughs> My goodness me, that's just mind-blowing that they can do this. And then what they did with these cells, after they'd taken the particular genes out, they then looked at their growth rates in 21% oxygen, which is normal air, mm. and in 50% oxygen which is obviously lots and lots and lots of oxygen. And what they found was that, um, okay, a lot of them were unaffected, but they sort of found four sort of pathways, four sort of sets of these cells that appeared to be affected by too much oxygen. Mm. Okay, and so they looked at these sets of cells and they're thinking, okay, so what's the similarity between them? Why are these ones being affected by too much oxygen and the vast majority not? And mm -hmm. they got it down to the fact that these um, cells all had in common the fact that they've got these things called iron sulfur proteins in them, okay? Oh, iron yeah. sulfur proteins, there's two good <laughs> elements there. Now, iron sulfur proteins, we're full of them. Nice. And what they do is they help electrons move around, mm -hmm. okay, in particular chemical processes, which is really rather important. Um, and as the name suggests, they contain both iron and they contain both sulfur, or sulfur as well, okay? Now, both of those elements can react with oxygen and be oxidized. And wow. so the workers are thinking, yeah, well, this is actually what's going on, that this iron-sulfur unit in this protein is susceptible to reaction with oxygen, and then once it reacts with oxygen, it's no longer reactive. It can no longer do its job oh. of shuttling electrons around. And so therefore the surrounding um, material um, gets too much oxygen in it and then that ends up being bad. And that's it. where so, the damage is. And that's where the damage is. So <laughs> essentially what you're doing is you're rusting. Essentially. Oh, wow. <laughs> Inside <laughs> rusting. <laughs> <laughs> Internal rust, yeah. So... Um, but, I mean, God, the work that has gone into that study to, to just <laughs> remove 20,000 genes. Oh, my god. When Alan sent this through, he said, I wish my students worked that hard. <laughs> so shout out to she Alan's students. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, of course they work that hard. My goodness, they're there at all hours. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alan. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And thank you, Motat. Amen. <laughs> Well, I didn't know that before. Dear Science, thanks to MOTAT, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow.
Unknown Mortal Orchestra's new Sunbleach record V is exactly what we needed to drive around the windows down and feel like the main character. Sorry! So here at BFM we've decided to make it our album of the week. Hold on to your B-cards and stay tuned to 95 BFM Breakfast all this week if you want to be in the running to win a copy of this album, V. The new album from Unknown Mortal Orchestra, out March 17th. Audio. Culture. Tune in to 95BFM Drive every second Tuesday as they're joined by one of our friends from Audio Culture, sharing the songs, stories and salacious scandal from which is woven the mighty tapestry of New Zealand music. Audio Culture, more cultured than a blue cheese with a BA. Every other Tuesday on 95BFM Drive. Thanks to Audio Culture. Iwi Waiata, the noisy library of New Zealand music. Go to audioculture.co.nz. This is a sad, sad day. Um, BFM, the font of liberalism and tolerance at the <laughs> centre of the University of Auckland. The Wire. At the end of last week, Nationals Housing Minister Chris Bishop stood up and spoke about Nationals' proposed changes to the build-to-rent policy as well as some other legislation changes to fit the party's housing plans. Today I spoke with Dr Shane Reddy from the National Party and I started by asking him about what build to rent means and Nationals' changes to the current policy are planned. So uh, build to rent is used much more extensively overseas than it is here in New Zealand and we need to look at what settings. It is a very good uh, policy and we need to look at what settings we need to uh, develop to make it more more welcoming and more realistic here. What we know some of the things not to do. So uh, embarrassingly, uh, earlier this year, no, it might have been last year actually, uh, the current Labor government, who have had an interest in build to rent as well for a number of years now, uh, realised that their position on interest deductibility for build to rent wasn't tenable, and so they reversed that. So that's not what that's what not to do. Uh, don't develop a policy, drop it into the current settings, and think it will work. 
uh, we're very interested in build to rent, and you've heard that through our housing spokesperson. And uh, what we think needs to happen to grow more of this market is a couple of things. First of all, we need to change the uh, Overseas Investment Act and allow more institutional investors into this market. Uh, a vibrant market with funds coming in um, would be good for build to rent. And then secondly, the Income Tax Act, uh, we need to uh, put build to rent on a commercial basis just like uh, other commercial buildings are and, uh, and allow depreciation uh, on, on those properties. And we think those two things would uh, stimulate the market. We need more players in the market, uh, but to enter the market, uh, they need to see more robust settings. And, and I think this, this talks to uh, the damage that's been done to the renters' market over the last uh, five years that increase in, in rents by $150 a week uh, under this government and the, the need we have to increase the size of the rental market to be available to renters. Uh, that's the objective that we're all trying to achieve. Right, so by increasing rental properties, we're also decreasing that pressure on the rental market. It is. There's a supply and demand component here and uh, if we increase supply, uh, then we'll decrease demand and hopefully stabilise uh, rental prices, uh, just as one tool um, to push back against the war on landlords that we've seen from this government. Will the changes to the Income Tax Act affect standard landlords in New Zealand, you know, people that might just own one or two investment properties, or is this only to affect the major property investors and builders of build-to-rent complexes? So we've talked about the changes that need to happen for ma and pa uh, landlord owners. And uh, those changes would be, uh, one, we do need to allow interest deductibility. It's been one of the main drivers for pushing up rents when the government decided they would remove uh, interest deductibility uh, for rentals. And then secondly, um, we'd reduce the extended bright line test uh, back to what it was. That's what we need to do for standard ma and pa, uh, who, who own uh, amongst them a substantial number of properties, uh, generally just one, one or two. Um, but they are significant contributors to the rental market and uh, yet they've been forced to pass through costs uh, through policy decisions uh, like removal of interest deductibility on rental properties and we would reverse that. Will the amendment to the Overseas Investment Act, what's this going to entail for our overseas investors and how will it affect New Zealand? What's going to change? So uh, what it will do uh, is it will uh, make the rent-to-build market uh, more robust on commercial terms uh, by allowing uh, interest deduct oh, by allowing depreciation. So the government took one step towards this as the market was failing, the build to rent market was failing. Uh, they realised, oh heck, maybe we need to allow interest deductibility on this as on this particular sort of program, as if it's just another commercial building, which it is. Well, if that's the case, then uh, apply the full suite of tools that you would have to a commercial building, which includes uh, being able to deduct depreciation. So uh, that would be the prime tool. Uh, to encourage, a, oh, that's through the Income Tax Act, uh, but uh, that would be the, the prime tool uh, to uh, allow and encourage international investors as well as relaxing the Overseas Investment Act. Does the National Party plan to scrap Kiwi Build? Well, Kiwi Build's been one of the most embarrassing failures uh, for this government that they're desperate to try and forget it's taken a minister down. Uh, Phil Twyford's career will be uh, aligned uh, with the failure to Kiwi build. And when I look back at the 2017 campaign and the adamancy uh, with which he said 
I am confident we will build 100,000 houses. You just have to look and say, how, how could you be? You didn't understand the market, and yet you stood there uh, with your jaw out and told New Zealanders this is what you would do. So uh, Kiwi Build's been a, a significant failure. Look, uh, we'll develop the suite of tools. We'll choose the uh, best of the current policy settings uh, that could possibly be working and look how we can be doing a better job uh, to date, Kiwi Build has not delivered that. So when we have all the information, if we're privileged to be government, uh, we'll weigh everything up and uh, and make that decision. In addition to these build to rent plans that will expand the rental market, what about the ownership market? What are what are Nationals' plans for that? Um, so uh, we're very enthusiastic uh, to be uh, inviting and welcoming and providing environments. Uh, for new home buyers uh, to be able to get a step on the property market. And that's a combination of a number of policies. Uh, first of all, uh, reducing the cost of inflation uh, across some of their uh, disposable items, for example, fruit and vegetables, unbelievable uh, figures out yesterday on some of those prices, which gives you more discretionary income, which gives you more ability to service the mortgage. So um, we'll apply ourselves to the cost of living so there's more disposable income uh, to be available to pay mortgages for first-time ownership. Uh, secondly, we're very interested in the, uh, the the supply of houses as it relates to building materials, as it relates to how can we just build more houses. Uh, and now wrapped around that, of course, is our, our interest in collaborating with social housing providers for those who need social housing and uh, those in the NGO sector who are more nimble than the government sector, who are generally more nimble than Kiwi Build type uh, operators, and we're interested in collaborating with them for their assistance in the, uh, in the social housing market. So social housing isn't going to be just government-provided housing. It's going to be more provided by outsourced. While the NGOs who are doing that at the moment, uh, they're very nimble and uh, we're interested in collaborating with them, helping them to do more uh, of what they're doing at the moment. I also noticed Chris Bishop said some things about sourcing building materials, which we all know is really difficult at the moment. So what are Nationals' plans around sourcing materials and labour for these buildings? Mm. So when I was saying that uh, we're interested in how we can simply build more houses and where the hurdles are, of course the quintessential example has been the issue of JIB uh, in this past year where coming through one sole provider there wasn't enough supply, prices went up and that started to severely constrain the residential uh, construction market. Uh, So we're interested in looking at what bottlenecks we need to remove for the supply of materials so we can literally build more houses. And I think that JIB will be the quintessential example uh, that that was a hurdle and a bottleneck uh, that truly became problematic. What are the projected figures of how many more houses New Zealanders are going to have due to these changes? So uh, we are privileged to have the uh, army of analysts uh, and the moment-by-moment data that uh, a government has. Um, so we're not able to make those projections, but but just in a very general way, we all agree we simply need to build more houses. So we'll be focused on those policies, those levers that we do have control over, which include the fiscal levers that we've talked about, supply and demand policy settings, that we've talked about building materials, uh, bottlenecks uh, that we need to address. We'll be interested in applying a suite of tools to simply build more houses. Uh, how many are actually needed? Uh, look, the sense would be that it's in the tens of thousands, but that's a very general uh, statement without having the fine detail that the tools of government would be able to bring to that sort of calculation. 
That was Nationals Dr Shane Reddy talking to me about Nationals' bill to rent and housing plans. Uh, I don't know, and, and frankly, the whole thing gives me the heebie-jeebies. The Wire. The average New Zealander emits over six tonnes of carbon dioxide per year, and 1.4 tonnes of this comes from electricity usage. Ecotricity has become the first energy company in Aotearoa to become Toitu Climate Positive Certified. Today, I spoke to the co-founder and CEO of Ecotricity, Al Yates, about the company and started by asking him what makes Ecotricity unique. Um, hi, Beth. Top of the morning to you. Um, look, Ecotricity is New Zealand's um, only 100% renewable and climate positive certified provider in New Zealand. We were New Zealand's only 100% carbon zero certified company for the last 10 years, but we've just made the step up to climate positive, which, which is a really positive piece, and it means that all the emissions that come from, say, wind, hydro and solar, which are very small, we're actually offsetting that beyond the lifetime emissions of, of those plants that we get power from. Awesome. What does it mean to be Toitu Climate Positive Certified? So right from the get-go, we've always been 100% renewable um, and now we're climate positive. But it also means that we can have a broader reach to our supplier base and so we can ask questions of our suppliers, um, our key suppliers in particular, to say, you know, what is your carbon reduction plan and ask for a bit of feedback and, and commitment to reducing their carbon. So it's not just what we do within our own business in terms of, you know, the, the wind, hydro, solar um, generation that we source from, but it's actually our supplier base that we start asking questions. So, hey, look, are there some things that you can reduce your emissions with? So it has a much broader appeal or broad impact, I should say, to companies that work with us. Right. Where does your power come from? So our power comes from a number of sources. Probably one of the the, uh, the bits that, that um, we work really hard on is actually our customers, of which about 60% of our customers uh, have got solar on their rooftops, be it commercial or residential. And so, for instance, in summer, around about 25% of our power actually comes from solar from our customers. And so everything that we've done to get Ecotricity up and running from 10 years ago is all about supporting the uptake of brand new renewables, including solar. Hmm. But we also take power from winds uh, and hydro, so Tikapo A and B uh, scheme, the hydro scheme in Tongariro. Um, and we've got a couple of wind farms that we also take from around the country. So, you know, we have a long process that we have to go through. It's a United Nations certified protocol where we have to measure, for instance, the amount of concrete in the base of a wind turbine or in a hydro dam. We even have to go as far as measuring or estimating the amount of foliage or, or grass that was in a valley before a lake was built. And so mm. we have to offset the emissions from that rotting tree or grasslands that was sitting in that, in that lake before the hydro dam was built. So it's quite a detailed process, and we have to do that as a life cycle emission from way to go. How does the cost of your electricity compare with other electricity companies? Yeah, good question. So we are actually quite competitive, and in some cases we can be more competitive than uh, other uh, electricity retailers. Mm. And that's in part due to we've got some really good price plans that support the uptake of solar. And so around about 60% of the customers in New Zealand that do have solar over the last 12 months have come to Ecotricity because we've got specific price plans to support solar. Right. 
Uh, we work with about 40 uh, solar installers throughout the country. And we also have price plans that support the uptake of electric vehicles. So we have got the cheapest EV plan. It's called EcoSaver. So that if you've got an electric vehicle, you can charge that electric vehicle in most networks 24-7 at off-peak rates for every weekend and every weeknight and every midday session you know, during the week as well. So we're targeting the support of solar and we're targeting the support of the uptake of, of electric vehicles. So um, yeah, we are competitive, but we also supply to um, you know, some very large commercial customers and now some industrial customers. So we've got solutions not just for residential customers, but all the way through to industrial consumers as well. Awesome. How much power does Ecotricity generate a year and how many homes can it supply? So we are currently supplying at this, at this very point on an annualised basis around about 400 gigawatt hours per annum. To put that in perspective, it's around about 50,000 household equivalents, but that is spread between homes and businesses. Uh, this time next year, we expect to be uh, supplying around about 75 to maybe 80,000 household equivalents. A large part of that growth is effectively us marrying up large-scale solar or wind farms to industrial clients. So they have the ability to, you know, for instance, shut down coal or gas consumption for industrial heat, and then we can provide a alternative for that commercial or industrial clients with a dedicated solar farm or wind farm. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I think the key thing is is there's only three companies in New Zealand that are now climate positive certified. We, we hope this is an inspiration to a lot of other companies in New Zealand. There are a lot of amazing companies that are zero carbon or carbon zero certified. Um, mm. And I know that some of them are, are looking to, to go the next level to climate positive. And look, we welcome other people and other companies to, to, uh, to join the, the fight against climate change. Which is more important now than ever. Absolutely. That was co-founder and CEO of Ecotricity, Al Yates, speaking to me about the company being the first in Aotearoa to become climate positive certified. We'll be back after a short break. Music's everywhere. 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 It's like a cloud of art. art. Here at 95 BFM, we've sucked up some of the best contemporary bangers, bottled them and chucked them into a special Spotify playlist just for you. Just for you. The March playlist is up and features tracks from Crystal Chen, Mr. Ho, Greco Romank, Office Dog, Tanuki Chan, and Unknown Mortal Orchestra. Follow 95BFM on Spotify for a monthly Spotify playlist and stay au fait. Presidency, where Friday night meets Saturday morning. Specialty mixes from related articles, index records, Heat Rockers records, and the Big Fresh Collective. DJs from Aotearoa and beyond. Residency, Saturdays at 1am, only on 95BFM. Why should New Zealanders care so much about this? Because your children will curse you if you don't. The EPA has recently made a submission to propose a ban on the use of PFAs in makeup. Today I spoke to Lakesh Padhai from the University of Auckland's Faculty of Environmental Engineering and I started by asking him what these PFAs are and why they are a concern. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, PFAS stands for uh, per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. So I know it's a long chemical name, but in short, they are called as forever chemicals. And they are called forever chemicals because uh, these compounds contain a stable carbon-fluorine bond, which is difficult to break down. And that's the entire reason industry started using these compounds since 1930s, because they uh, actually stay for a very long time. They persist. And they also have some amazing properties, like they are water-resistant, they are stain-resistant. They are heat resistant, and because of that, they have found very large application in our daily life on products such as water repellent jackets, on non-stick cookware, on food wrappers, etc. Uh, but now, uh, for last two, three decades, particularly, their ill impacts or their adverse impacts on human health and environment are becoming known, and that's the reason these PFAS are a concern. So, what makes PFAS particularly um, harmful? So what makes it harmful is, uh, first of all, as I said, they persist. They, they stay there for a very long time, but also they have a toxicity associated with them in the sense that there have been some now established link with PFAS and human health impacts, adverse human health impacts. Uh, that includes um, uh, impacts on the reproductory development stage, uh, cancers, and some of the dysfunctions of the major organs, including liver. With all that said, it is still a lot, a lot is still unknown in the toxicity domain, but their persistence and their accumulation in the environment coupled with the biomagnification that happens in the food chain uh, makes them particularly problematic. So they've recently been banned in makeup. Um, that sounds quite important given the ill health effects, right? Yeah, so it's, it's technically still not banned yet. Uh, I think New Zealand EPA is proposing a ban, and it's a, definitely a welcome step, but they are seeking a feedback about it. It is important in the sense because the recent studies have shown that about 50% of the cosmetics products, at least a study done in North America, says that 50% of the cosmetic products contain PFAS. And as we are saying earlier, the health risk of PFAS, there have been some established health risks of PFAS, so if you are using the makeup and getting exposed to PFAS through the makeup, there is a concern about coming in contact and getting exposed on a daily basis. And so, so in that way, it represents a very significant step forward to ban PFAS in this, uh, uh, especially the makeup products. Right. So there's a proposal. Is that with the government? Uh, it's proposed by New Zealand EPA. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's a government. Right. So in terms of alternative what can be used? Yeah, so there are different alternatives. So I'm not a chemist, uh, first and foremost. So there have been a lot of research going on on what compounds can give similar properties that of PFAS that I was talking about, uh, you know, sort of like stain-resistant, water-repellent, and so on. But again, uh, there is no standard answer. There is no chemical that has been found that can be said as a safer alternative, uh, ubiquitously used, that can replace PFAS. So there is a lot of research underway, but there are alternatives available. And what such kind of move by New Zealand EPA will do is actually encourage more of researchers and more of the industry to innovate and think about the products that are safer for the environment and human health. Right. So would you like to see the banning of all PFAS everywhere? Yeah, so, so, that's, so that's a very good question. The cosmetics represents a smaller exposure pathway to some, uh, some extent in the sense that, yes, people using the uh, cosmetics uh, that contain PFAS are getting exposed. But if you want to actually limit the exposure of PFAS to wider population, 
the the recommended action probably would be to ban PFAS containing products in all non-essential items. And so that, again, goes back to the thing I talked earlier regarding the water repellent jackets or non-stick cookware or food wrappers. And those are certainly, I wouldn't consider, very essential uh, qualities in the sense that you can get around with some of the other alternatives that are currently in the market. There are a lot of products now that market themselves as PFAS-free. Still have to do your research, but a ban uh, or a restriction of PFAS in all these non-essential items would be a significant step in making industries look for alternate safer products. So I, I would definitely recommend going that pathway, especially knowing what we know now about the risk of PFAS. Right. So what advice do you have for our listeners at home on how they can reduce their exposure to PFAS? I think more importantly for consumers or for uh, general public, uh, you need to be aware of what ingredients, your, the products that you use contain. So checking the ingredient list in the aisle or wherever you are shopping is very critical. If you see compound like PFAS being present or listed there, any of the perfluorochemicals or polyfluoroalkyl substances, then it's better to avoid purchasing those. Again, you better to buy from a trusted brand. Again, that does not mean the trusted brand is not using PFAS because there are currently no regulations uh, covering all PFAS, but at least you reduce the risk of uh, getting into some unintentional use of products that, that contain these ingredients. So I think just be aware of what you are purchasing or, uh, and the ingredients that it has and try to stay away from the products that specifically contain uh, this compound. Right. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think I just want to commend New Zealand EPA. This is a very welcome step, uh, and this is uh, certainly represents the step in the right direction in for us to use uh, restrict the use of compounds can, uh, products containing PFAS. I hope that though we don't stop here, and as I was discussing earlier, maybe we should think about expanding these restrictions to other non-essential items as well. That was Lakesh Padhai from the University of Auckland's Faculty of Environmental Engineering speaking to me on the proposed ban on PFA use in makeup. The French, for instance, love the cock. You're tuned into The Wire. The Silicon Valley bank collapsed this week, having a big effect on tech companies. Today I spoke with Chanel Julie from the University of Auckland's Department of Economics. And I started by asking her to explain why the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. Yeah, so Silicon Valley Bank, uh, the the run that we just saw and its collapse is pretty much a textbook bank run situation, much like the toilet paper runs that we saw happening in New Zealand during the COVID pandemic. Um, Silicon Valley's bank uh, model was to attract these kinds of tech companies and venture capital funds by offering additional loans at favorable rates in exchange for the company's banking with with Silicon Valley. Um, And what they did with these funds, these deposits, was they essentially made a bet that interest rates would remain low by investing the money into longer-term maturity bonds. And so that worked very well during COVID when interest rates were indeed low. But as they began to rise, as we're all across the world trying to battle inflation, uh, that posed a problem for the bank um, because the value of those bonds dropped and that meant that their assets didn't have as much value as their liabilities if everyone were to withdraw suddenly. And so the bank 
uh, last week took some steps to try and rearrange its portfolio, and that sent a signal to some depositors who then began to withdraw. And the panic took hold, leading to a mass withdrawal on the bank, which ultimately led to its failure. So as interest rates rise globally, can we expect to see other banks suffer the same? It all depends on how banks have funded themselves. So uh, this is where regulation becomes really important. After the global financial crisis, a lot of regulators put backstops in to try and prevent excessive risk-taking behaviour by banks. So banks are required to hold a level of reserve and regulators tend to be across Uh, any behaviour that looks to signal that banks are taking on excessive uh, amounts of risk. So unfortunately, it seems that this seemed to have uh, gone under the nose of the US regulators in this particular case. Uh, But most of uh, the banks that have failed in the the last uh, couple of hours have been um, those uh, smaller, more regional banks who have tended to fund themselves in that way. A lot of the larger, more established banks, uh, both in the U.S. and New Zealand, fund themselves quite differently. Here in New Zealand, uh, the large Australian-owned banks uh, tend to hold a lot of their assets in property rather than in these uh, these kinds of longer-term maturity assets. What impact will this have on the Silicon Valley region as well as the tech companies there? So it may lead to some short-term liquidity issues for tech companies, especially if uh, they had put all of their eggs in the Silicon Valley Bank basket. Um, The resolution, although regulators have assured uh, depositors that their money will be paid back, uh, this may take some time as as regulators look into all of the, the creditors of the bank. So in the meantime, if these tech companies don't have access to additional funding, uh, for example, for their payroll, there is a risk of some level of layoffs, uh, which compounds the already uh, uh, kind of uh, venture capital and tech winter that we're, we're heading into. The global tech industry, is that experiencing some difficulty due to funding? Yes, the combination of uh, rising interest rates uh, and and the inflation that we're seeing as we head out of the COVID pandemic uh, has dried up some of the funding for tech. And uh, tech companies and startups tend to rely really heavily on venture capital funds, uh, which are unfortunately quite fickle in these in these times. So they can dry up quite quickly. Uh, we are seeing the tech industry. Uh, become subject to these kinds of shocks where, where funding is, is, is drying up and uh, rearranging quite quickly. And so it's important that these companies uh, anticipate uh, sudden changes and maintain sufficient cash flows for these kinds of periods of high uncertainty. Would you say the same is true for the New Zealand tech industry? Do you think they're at risk? So the New Zealand tech industry hasn't been completely immune from uh, the layoffs and the the dry up in funding. Uh, we've seen zero recently lay off um, up to 800 uh, workers. And so um, New Zealand is grappling with this uh, crisis to a lesser degree, although luckily I think um, they were less exposed uh, than some companies in, for example, the UK to this uh, this US um, uh, environment. 
I think that implications for funding for tech companies, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily only pose bad news. Uh, while some venture capital funds are likely to retreat back to the U.S. and the U.K., we are seeing still a lot of funding coming from Australia. And so it's likely that uh, the partnership between New Zealand and Australia will start to strengthen as we come out of, out, out of this uh, crisis. Back to the banks. In terms of protecting banks from collapse, like all the ones in the USA right now, what can be done? Yeah, so this is a really important issue for regulators. Uh, there is a balance between, um, for example, when, when the regulator is both setting monetary policy and managing supervision of banks, it's important to uh, distinguish between uh, what poses broader systemic risks and supply and demand shocks, in which case monetary policy is the tool to address, um, you know, kind of recession risk. But that's quite different from uh, the supervision component, which is forward-looking, making sure that banks are not exposing themselves uh, to excessive risk that can prompt these kinds of, of panics. Um, and so that's a, um, an important regulatory distinction for, for our regulators. Um, in some, some regulators provide uh, deposit insurance. Um, so this is the, what's been worked through by the FDIC in the U.S. at the moment. Um, in New Zealand, the Reserve Bank has tools like the Open Bank Resolution Framework, which helps to instill confidence in the public, so both in companies and large-scale investors, as well as uh, regular um, bank customers like you and me. Um, these frameworks uh, provide a um, tools for the Reserve Bank to step in, take control of any banks that are experiencing a crisis, and to prevent that becoming a contagion that spreads to other banks. And just having that framework alone often is enough to provide the confidence needed to prevent these kinds of panicked runs. So it sounds like we're quite protected here in New Zealand. Yeah, I would say that uh, the funding structures and uh, the tools that the regulators have at hand um, make it unlikely that the the type of uh, runs we're seeing in the U.S. will spread uh, closer to home. What are the next steps for those affected by this bank collapse, as well as the bank itself next steps? So at the moment, the FDIC, so the, the regulator in the U.S., um, has taken control of the bank's balance sheet. Um, and it's now, the next stage is to work out essentially who all the creditors to the bank are, who to whom the bank owes money. And what tends to happen is the regulator looks at the how systemically important each of these creditors are and essentially lines them up in a, in a sort of hierarchy um, and addresses the funding concerns of each of these creditors and then works down the list. So this is why it can take some time, especially for depositors who had smaller deposits with the bank, um, they might, uh, it might take a longer time for them to receive their funds. That was Chanel Julie from the University of Auckland's Department of Economics speaking to me about the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. That was The Wire. Ko ira te hōtaka katoa mō tene wiki nei te mihi ki a koutou katoa i korero mai ki o mō tene rā. And that's a wrap on the Tuesday Wire. Thanks to everyone who spoke with us today. Alan Blackman, Dr Shane Reddy, Al Yates, Chanel Julie and Lakesh Patai.
Nei rā hoki te mihi, ki a koutou e whakarongo ana. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to 95BFM. Next up is the one to four with Jin with the grooviest tunes. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.